Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by entrepreneur, TV personality, author, podcaster, and dating guru, Paul Carrick Brunson. Once described as the real-life version of Will Smith in Hitch and endorsed by Oprah Winfrey herself, Paul has made a name for himself as the world's most influential matchmaker. But this wasn't always the plan. A proud second-generation son of Jamaica and born and raised in the US, Paul graduated from business school before pursuing a career in investment banking. His 20s took him down multiple career paths in the corporate world, from selling animal shelter data to pharmaceutical manufacturers, to creating the non-profit blueprint, to serving as the youngest and first ever Black American director at Kaplan's in Washington, D.C., In the year 2000, he married the love of his life, Jill, and subsequently spent five years working on an investment division for a Turkish family in the Middle East. It wasn't until a few years later that Paul realised he wasn't serving his authentic self. Having conquered the business world, he decided to pursue the thing that gave him light, life and drive, his passion. Gripped with a desire to rebuild black family structures and help people sustain healthy relationships, by 2009, Paul had founded One Degree From Me Matchmaking and Relationship Coaching Service. From here, he has gone on to co-host several hit dating shows, including Lovetown USA and Celebs Go Dating, and has published the infamous guide to dating, It's Complicated, But It Doesn't Have To Be. Paul once said, one of the most critical skills we can have on this planet is being able to establish a relationship. His dedication to living, growing and loving as authentically as is humanly possible is probably what makes him so captivating to watch and listen to. I've never met anyone more humble and gracious in my entire life. Paul, it is an honour to have you here with us today. Welcome to the 20 Not Something podcast. Oh my goodness. Can Can I say something? Can I say something? This is this is truly, truly from the bottom of my heart. That was not one of the best. That was the best introduction I've ever heard. And and I'm telling you, honestly, I've I've been on like this podcast, like just trek right now. Like it's like three to four podcasts every day for like the last hundred days. Right. So I'm talking about hundreds of podcasts. That was that was the best. That was the best. That was the most thorough. That was, it touched on family, touched on values. It touched on the career. It was the most thorough, the best. That was the best. Oh, thank you so much. I'm literally grinning so much from that. Thank you. Can you, can you actually send that to me so my sister can send that out? <laughs> so people can just read that. That would be great. Sure. Yeah. No worries. I'll send it over. No, it was mad though, Paul, because honestly, I spend probably the best part of an hour researching most guests and I honestly spent a whole day on you because I was just <laughs> Google and everything that came off I was like Jesus Christ this guy's done a lot it was an awe <laughs> oh, man like you, you even brought back memories like when you read through that I was like oh yeah I remember it was called one degree for me first like yeah yeah, yeah. so um yeah that's cool really good well done oh well it's an honor to have you here honestly i'm so excited to chat to you um but i always kick off these episodes by asking my guests what is the one thing that they wanted most from their 20s decade money money nice 
(laughs) all about the money. That was it. That was, that was my whole focus was money. Is that what sort of prompted the business school element? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, When I, when I got out of, uh, out of uh, college, I literally looked, or should I say when I was leave, when I was in my senior year of college, I literally looked at all of the careers that would create the most, you know, high, had the highest salaries mm. for the first year. And I remember looking at it and saying, oh, wow, investment bankers, mm-hmm. they make the most. At that time, investment banker can make 75000 uh, U.S. starting per year with like a $25,000, $30,000 bonus. Wow. And so that, that is, I mean, it, and it sounds, you know, you know, weird to kind of look at it this, this way, but quite honestly, I just wanted to make money. So that was my focus. And that's why I picked investment banking. Mm. And when did that focus change? Cause I guess as you went through your twenties, you know, maybe money sort of ended up going down the pecking order. Obviously you had that big career change. Can you remember a time when that just like shifted and you were like, Oh wait, no money isn't always the driving force. Yeah, definitely. You know, it wasn't one pivotal moment that made everything, you know, crystallize, mm. but it was definitely, um, I think pursuing the path of money and just becoming unhappy, you know, one moment that I'll never forget. And this was a, a definitely a, um, a pivotal moment, you know, in my life is, uh, so, you know, I, I got my job at the investment bank. I was making my 75,000 plus my bonus. You know what I mean? Um, bought my BMW, had my <laughs> Rolex watch. You know what I mean? I was good. Um, and I had a boss who, so I was in my 20s. My boss was 33. He was the youngest kind of senior investment banker. And he was well known on Wall Street as this, you know, just phenomenal person. And he and his wife, so she was pregnant. And she was giving birth to their first child, little boy. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, we were working. So my boss and I, we were working on what was considered to be the biggest deal that this investment bank ever had. So it was a massive deal, very important. It was going to bring in a lot of money to the investment bank. And there was one day that was very important for my boss to be present in the office. It so happened that as he was coming into work, his wife calls him. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh, honey, my water's broken. I have to go to the hospital. You know, come back, turn around. And he didn't turn around. Oh. He went into work, and he had, like, a relative pick her up, and he didn't even go into the hospital. He stayed at work. Now, here was the worst part. The worst part was actually not even him doing that trifling thing. It was that once he got to work, everyone was applauding. Like, yeah, you picked here. Like, you're, you're here. Like, we're, we're a fraternity almost, you know? That was the moment where I realized this is not the place for me. Like, mm-hmm. this is not, I don't want to be this. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to do this. And so that was a, a massive moment where I started to think about, okay, what, how can I create my own path in life? For sure. And you you hit the nail on the head there, like life is made up of choices. And in that moment, he made that choice, which was then going to, you know, put into jeopardy the rest of his life, basically. Like, how do you choose your career over your partner? And that's one thing I want to switch you about, actually, because um, you married Jill in your mid-20s, wasn't it? Yeah, um, 25. Like, yeah, exactly. Right yeah. There, yeah. 
which is quite, I guess, conventionally quite young now to, to get married. Um, how did you guys meet? And then how did you end up balancing? Because obviously you were still in the business world at that time. So how did you balance that relationship with obviously your career? Yep. You know, so we met in college, you know, so we were like, and literally, we t- technically, you know, if you want the real, we met <laughs> the summer before college. So we met in a, uh, like an orientation program. Um, she doesn't really remember me, but I definitely remember her. You know what I mean? Um, but, um, but that's really where we met and we were friends for, you know, for a long while. Uh, like we, we literally went from friends to best friends to lovers, right? Which I always say is, is a very romantic path to take. And I know not everyone can take that path, but that's the path, you know, that, that, that we went on. But I also say, uh, I was rejected first, you know, so <laughs> I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be in between the sheets, you know, from day one <laughs> and it didn't happen that way. So I had to be very patient, you know, and do the friend route. Um, yeah. but, you know, uh, so we, so, so we were, um, a committed partnership, if you will, all through my early investment banking days, all through, um, you know, going off to work for the Turkish company, you know, so we, we were, we were solidified partners and I tell you, I don't have regrets, but if I could go back and do things differently, I would have actually gotten married earlier. Interesting. I thought you were going to go the other way then and say like, wish you had, cause I think now there's, there's this pressure in your in your early 20s or 20s in general to experiment and try loads of things and the grass is always greener and sometimes you get into a relationship and then you're like oh but I should be single maybe and not being tied down too early so that's really interesting that you say that you should got married earlier why is that yeah because when you find the right one mm-hmm. life is better and and that's not just me saying that that's science mm-hmm. life is literally better you are healthier, you are happier, you can think more clearly, you can think more creatively, um, you have more financial power, you know, you have, you, you have two brains, you know what I mean? Um, when you're in love and you're in commit, so there's a difference between being in lust and then being in committed love. Mm-hmm. Science, you know, if you look at the science of it, you know, it's, it's drastically different. So when you're in committed love, you're able to almost self-actualized like you're able to see and feel and live out the best of yourself so i already knew i was in love she already knew she was in love but we waited because of all the things that society tells us to do mm-hmm. like oh make sure you have a job with enough income make sure that you're able to get a house make sure you're able to uh, you know buy a, a super expensive engagement ring. Like Mm -hmm. make sure you're able to do all of this nonsense. That means nothing. Right. But society is built that way. So I wish I, I, you know, I'm happy that we did it at 25, but if I could have done it at 21, 22, I would have because in the, in my early twenties, we lived apart. Right. She lived in a different city than I lived. So, there was that distance, which creates emotional turmoil, which creates stress, right? Mm-hmm. Which like, so none of that had to happen. So I think, wow, if those things weren't happening and we were actually together, maybe that could have, you know, allowed us to see and live life in a more fulfilled way. Mm-hmm. So I would have, I would have gone earlier if I could have. 
And you didn't have like temptations or, you know, thoughts of what if, what if I was doing something different at that time? You just knew that she was the one. Yeah. You, you, like you're talking about literally doing things to people. <laughs> that was a nice question. Like, you have temptations about doing things. I mean, uh, <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, no, not at that time. That's incredible. But, yeah. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, here's how I got to that point is one is I started my dating career. I say earlier than most human beings, than 99% of human beings. I started when I was like four or five years old <laughs> and everyone was like, no, but seriously, when we used to take naps in what we called uh, a nursery school, pre-nursery, right? Uh, literally they would write notes home to my mom, Paul, like take naps with the girls. <laughs> <laughs> He always is, when, when everyone wakes up, he's in a sleeping bag with the girls. I don't understand what's happening. So I started, I, I definitely started earlier and mm. with the wild dude, you know, early, like I was the early wild guy, right? So I understood that being wild, that there was an excitement to being wild. Mm. But when you're able to commit you're able actually to level up, mm-hmm. right? And, and and everyone eventually gets it. You know, all the like the player players, hustler hustlers, like those dudes, they eventually get it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they don't get it until they're 50, 60 years old. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I got it when I was 18, 19. I got it. So I wasn't, by 21, 22, I wasn't concerned about, oh, there's all these other women because when you find the one and you realize that everything is better about life with that one, Mm. you have no need for anyone else. Mm. You just don't. I think that speaks volumes. And the way you talk about your wife, you know, now and in previous interviews, it's, it's really beautiful. And I, I don't know whether this is a cultural thing or, or something prevalent in younger generations, especially, but I very rarely hear men talk so openly and fondly of their relationships in public. I don't know whether that's like a perception that they might come across as like wet or soppy or, you know, not yep. manly enough or whatever. Um, do you see that trend too? And and where do you think that comes from? That sort of, that lack of willingness to be vulnerable and open and like, yeah, right, I do love her and she is my world. Yeah. So, in you know, my opinion is that it's not a trend. It's always been that way. Mm. And a matter of fact, you know, so my heritage is Jamaican, you know, you go to Jamaica, you talk to the typical Jamaican man, like, like my grandfather, for example, you know, he's not holding my grandmother's hand, you know, outside, you know, let alone to profess his love, you know, and all, you talk about his feelings and his emotions. He's, he's, he's not doing that. This, this is the way that society has been created. Now, if we were to go all the way back and look at the anthropology, there's a, um, an anthropologist named David Buss, who uh, I'm a big fan of. He wrote uh, lots of great books, but one of my favorites is uh, uh, evolution, uh, evolutionary psychology, where he looks at like our origins and our relationship origins. Right. And if you go back to like hunter gatherer times, right. It was literally the guys, it was our responsibility to protect and provide. Like it was literally like, we're going to go hunt down some food. And by the way, when we go to hunt down this food, we're going to be away for like six months. 
right? We're going to come back. And the only reason why he or these guys back then would have relationships with women is so that they could procreate and that they, their genes can sustain, right? Mm-hmm. Women got with guys way, way back hunter-gatherer days because guess what? I can survive, right? If I'm with, especially if I'm with an alpha male, if I'm with the top guy, right? I have a higher likelihood of survival. That was, that, was the, the, that was the basic premise. That was how everything then evolved, right? Mm. It's interesting because it's only within the last maybe 40, 50 years. So like circa 1970s, that 60s, 70s, that love has really entered the picture, right? Marriages, we're not about love mm. in the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, right? And so you look at that and you say, oh my God. So if love just entered the picture in the 70s, that means like our parents, maybe they didn't really love each other. You know, <laughs> maybe they just got with each other because they had to or because it was convenient or, or, you know. And so then you think about, well, so talking about professing feelings, like this is, this is new. Mm. This is something that we have to come to grips with. And I think a lot of this is, and what I love now is you see this big battle around toxic masculinity and the the heart of that toxic masculinity, in my opinion, is, is holding back emotion, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, I believe that we're in a zone where more people, especially more men are going to begin to, to, to profess their love, you know, openly, uh, but more so their feelings and to talk about their feelings. And I, I really think that's going to happen going yeah, forward. It needs to happen. I think that shift, um, you know, we're progressing every day and that's something which I guess it's spoken about quite a lot now, but social change, as you said, it takes years and consi- I, I'd never really thought about it as like, it is a new thing. Yeah. Like that's, that's mad. Bringing it back to you then. And obviously, so you went through this, all these business ventures. And then I remember reading that the, the career change from sort of corporate climber to a love doctor, as it were, um, started with the nonprofit that you were doing with the students. And they were all from single parent homes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience and how that impacted you. Sure, sure. So, yeah, that was another big pivotal moment, you know, in my 20s where I, uh, you know, so at that time I was working for a, uh, a Turkish family and it was one of the best jobs ever, like ever. I'm talking about ever, ever, ever. <laughs> we were rolling in yachts, you know, it was like, it was just incredible. Um, and I was technically living between Washington DC and Istanbul. So I would go, you know, 10 to, you know, Turkey 10 times a year. Um, but I'm Jamaican. So I need to have more than one source of income, right? Uh, so I, at the same time, had a nonprofit organization. And what we did with this nonprofit organization is we provided tutoring, math, science, test preparation for the college entrance exams. We would help kids, mostly from high school, with their academics. That was the point of the nonprofit. But the 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 what made us unique is that we focused on low income households. So we were talking about kids whose, uh, you know, families were on government support, you know, government subsistence. So one summer we ran a, a summer camp 
And the summer camp had a hundred students in it, roughly a hundred students. And they were, these were all coming from low income households in Washington, DC. And it turned out that almost all were black kids. Right. Wow. And I was at the registration table on the first day of camp. And I was, you know, I would say like, okay, so what's your name? All right. Now where in DC do you live? All right. How many parents in the household? Right. Just a general question. How many parents live in the household? And every single person would say, I don't live with two parents. I just live with, and normally it was only a woman that they lived with. So it was either their mom, their grandmother, their auntie, right? And so at the end of the day, we had checked in all these students and I was just sitting looking at the sheet like, wow, not one of these kids live with their mother and father. Not one. And like almost none of them live with a father in the household. So here we were trying to teach them math and science and test prep, but fundamentally there was something much bigger happening in this family. And so that led me into research around the nuclear family and the academic difference between if you have two parents in the household versus one parent. And then I started to say, wow, look, academically, a two-parent household generates a child that does much better academically, goes to a much superior college, gets much bigger scholarships, right? Then I started to look at it and say, okay, well, how does it impact health? Wow, a two-parent household, and it's because of many things like resources, et cetera, creates a child that's much healthier lower chance of diabetes, lower chance of, you know, all these uh, ailments. Then I started to look at it socially. Then I started to look at, oh my gosh. So two-parent households typically create a child that goes on to then live in a two-parent household, whereas a single-parent household typically creates a child that goes on to live in a single-parent household, right? And so I started to connect all of these things, look at the, the social psychology of it, and became obsessed with just family, you know, and the power of family and became an advocate for that. And that's really what led me into matchmaking, right? Is That was my way to create more families. I was thinking about what you were just saying. And a part of me is like, I mean, divorce rates are so high now. It's one in two, which is astonishing. Do you ever think that I guess your job is to catch it before it gets to marriage. Like I think, you know, once you marry someone and you know that they're the one, then it should be, that's where the matchmaking comes in, isn't it? It's like making sure these people are right for each other and that they can work at this. But do you ever think that there is a possibility for when people aren't making each other happy, that the best case is to split up? Or do you think that anyone is capable of working on love? Oh, no. Most people shouldn't have no business being in a relationship together. Like mm. that, that's so, so my career started matchmaking and then it evolved into couples counseling. Mm. So right now it's interesting. I do no matchmaking on TV. I do matchmaking. On TV. Yeah. <laughs> my wife and I sold our, our, our matchmaking agency, but I do couples counseling mm. every day. I talk to lots and lots of couples, right? Now, what's very interesting to me is that stat that you just dropped. One out of two couples are basically being divorced. They're, they're, they're breaking up, right? But I think it's important for us to dig deeper 
into those numbers. So that is the case. 50% typically around the world, right? Divorce. But let's start to break it out based on socioeconomic status. If you look at it, just let's break it down into fives. Top 20%, then you go down, right? Each 20%, five, right? The top, let's just remove the top 20% of income earners in this, in the world. And let's look at the bottom, right? Um, four fifths. What do you think? What do you suspect the difference is between the divorce rate of those two groups? Uh, I, I have, I have no idea. I would, I would hazard a guess that the lower income groups potentially would stay together. Would that the, the divorce rate would be lower would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I can get why you would say that, especially with like all these high profile, you know, like Bill Gates, Jeffrey mm. Bezos, like breaking up, but actually it's the opposite. Interesting. So if you look at the lower, right, that four fifths group, the divorce rate is, 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 I mean, it is growing at such an alarming rate that by 2050, some experts predict that the marriage rate, so the number of people, the percentage of people getting married in that four to fifth group is going to be 0%. Jeez. 0%. So the divorce rate in that group is like, 60, 70% and growing to 80 to 90 to the point where just no one is going to be married. But then let's look at the top 20%. You know what the divorce rate there is? The divorce rate is like 20%. It's almost non-existent. Now, why is that? This is the, see, this is, this is, this is why I like looking deeper in the numbers, right? Well, if you look at the, 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 the society, right? And you understand what marriage was about. What marriage was about prior to the 1970s was it was really about protecting assets. Mm. Mm. It was about saying, I make a certain amount of money. I need to make sure that I keep this money and I pass this money down. And if you look at the most wealthy families in the world, that's really what happened is, 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 in, is, is money was passed down, right? Assets were passed down. So the wealthiest people in the world kind of get that it's not, it's about assets, Mm. but then it's also about other things. It's about traditions. The reason why it's so fascinating for me to like pull, pull back and break this down is because if you look at society, like just generally, you see how there's very little support for the four fifths. Mm. You see how the fourth, the four fifths are disproportionately impacted by content. Like I'm going to say this, this is, this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous for me to say, but I'm going to say this is who's looking at reality. Who's learning from reality TV. (laughs) Is it the four fifths or is it the, the, the the top 20 percentile? It's disproportionately the four fifths, Mm. right? Who's consuming all of this doom and gloom content around relationship is disproportionately the four fifths. Right. And so it's one of these where, and I'm not saying that if you're in the top 20 percentile, you don't watch reality TV because yeah, you do, but disproportionate consumption mm. is you go down. That's it's, mm. it's disproportionate consumption. So I guess I, I think that we have to realize that when we're talking about 
coupling, we're talking about relationships, it's not a one size fits all. For sure. We really have to distill and break down based on who the folks are and what the context is. But to your original point, the beginning of the relationship is the most important. The ability to discern, the ability, the ability, your ability to evaluate, to know who is the right for me, to know is this person a narcissist, mm. to know what their attachment style is, how do they love? Like all of those things are important because just for example, if you enter a relationship with a narcissist, they'll never love you. Mm. You'll never have love. So yeah, if you're in a relationship with a narcissist and, and, and you wake up 10 years later and you're married to them, yeah, you should get a divorce because it's not going to work. So, so, but if you had the ability to discern that from the beginning, mm-hmm. your, your life could be different. So, so I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. It's, it's at the front end more, yeah. more than it. No, thank you for going into so much detail on that. That's so interesting. I'd never even considered how the socioeconomic backgrounds affect marriage that's really really interesting and also touching on your last point of knowing um you talk a lot about how you have to love yourself first in order to to be loved did is that something that came naturally to you because i think that's one thing that a lot of people struggle with in this particular decade it's it's learning how to love everything about yourself when did you feel that you you experienced that well so there's something that there's almost like an addendum i want to add Right. Because I think it's about loving yourself, but equally being aware. So when I say you need to have self-love, I'm assuming that you have self-awareness. But when I say it, I don't think a lot of people pick that up. So I want to underscore that it's about self-awareness and self-love. Right. Now, I had that. I was blessed to go through terrible incidents throughout like the early part of my life. And I say I was blessed because it allowed me to become self-aware early. Right. When you have, you know, like I had in my uh, late teens, my best friend died. And then like my second best friend died, like boom, boom, boom. When you have incidents like that, that happen, you know, you start to wake up. And, you know, I say you you immediately become woke on life. You know what I mean? And so self-awareness is fundamental. And why is it fundamental? Like just to break it down, for example, part of self-awareness is knowing what you actually value opposed to what society tells you to value. I think it's self-awareness is about knowing, okay, what do you actually value? Mm. What is it? You know? And in your 20s, I think that's a great time for self-discovery, to become aware, self-aware. What are the things that you value? What is your vision, right? Learn about how you love, where that came from. Work on your ability to discern, right? Work on your confidence in making decisions. Like All of these things are required before you get into a relationship, because you need all of those skills, you need a master level degree, you know, you need a doctorate, a PhD in those skills in order to, to, to succeed in a relationship. Mm, definitely. Sorry, I'm just taking it all in. I have to, 
You've got so much wisdom, Paul. It's just washing over me. Oh, no, no, no. Please, please, please. Tell me again. Tell me again. <laughs> Before we move on to play the game at the end, I just wanted to quickly touch on Oprah Winfrey. Obviously, she said some lovely things about you being so much more than a matchmaker, but a life coach. And I read an interview uh, online in my casual stalking of you in preparation for this um and it said that when you actually first met her that you weren't nervous because you knew that that moment was going to happen you sort of saw it in your mind and that was really powerful to me because I talk a lot on this podcast about visualization and manifesting what we want um is that something that you've always done and how how do you how do you use that tool in in your everyday life yeah so um um yeah i'm so glad we're talking about this i was so you know um it was uh when i was in college uh the first book i ever read and a lot of people say what i don't believe you but yeah i didn't read my first book until college right (laughs) Um, and it it was it was a book called why should white guys have all the fun (laughs) that was the name of this book why should white guys have all the fun and it was a book written um by a uh, gentleman who unfortunately has passed, his name is Reginald, or it, it, yeah, his name is still Reginald Lewis. And he was the wealthiest African-American at that time. And the book was just saying, hey, you could be black from the ghetto like I am and do well in life and business and have fun, right? Um, so that was really what, what the whole premise of the book is. So I read that book in three days. First book I'd ever read cover to cover. I read it in three days. I absorbed everything about the book. And one part of the book is he talks about affirmations and mantras and became, those became fascinating to me. And what I realized is that an affirmation or a mantra is a statement that you say over and over and over again, so that you almost trick your mind into believing that that is the case. And once you do, once you trick your mind into believing that is the case, then that is the case, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, like I'm going to have a phenomenal day. Like I'm just going to have a great day. Like it's just going to be great, right? And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to say it. And as a result of saying it enough, I believe it's going to happen. So then I, oh my God, at the end of the day, you check in. It's like, oh my God, it was a great day, right? Once I started to understand how the mind worked, right, with regard to affirmations, I started to do greater projections, mm. like on my life, to say not just how's like my day is going to be great. No, my year is going to be epic. No, the next decade is going to be lit. You know, it's going to be on fire. Like you know, you know what I mean. The next decade is going to be crazy. And then I would even give more detail. You know, almost like I was creating a movie trailer Mm. to my life you know what i mean it was a movie trailer and in my trailer i had oprah there were there was a several things that i had in the trailer and and she was in it like and and it wasn't necessarily like i saw myself getting a tv show and becoming her friend like it wasn't like that but it was meeting her because when i grew up she was basically like the gatekeeper to all the cool kids. You know, if she acknowledged you, if you were able to get in her presence and Oprah acknowledged you, then you were considered like really good, exceptional at what you did. Mm. So in my mind, I always had her 
as, 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 as somebody. So I just had all these things going on in my mind and I would think about them from time to time. I have my vision board. I put them on my vision board. I'd say certain things. So absolutely. When I met her, I wasn't freaked out. I, I felt like this is, this is like, I've been preparing for this for like six years, you know, in my mind. Yeah. So I was ready. That's extraordinary. I, I struggle so much with it and I know how good it can be. And I spoke on a bonus episode the other day about vision boards and, you know, the fear that we have to say what we want. I think it's so prevalent. Um, but it's, it's mad speaking to you and hearing how effective it is and how you can trick your mind like that. It's baffling to me. Oh, it's, it, it is, it is all the way effective, but here's where most folks go wrong with it is they're not patient enough. Mm. You know, they think, all right, I'm putting this on my vision board now. That means at least next year this should happen. No, it doesn't work that way. Some things I was visualizing 25 years ago wow. are just now starting to materialize. You know what I mean? It takes, it takes time. So the patience, I think that's really where, where folks go wrong with visioning. Thanks, Paul. Okay, we're going to go on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. So uh, it used to be about um, quotes about millennials, but I got bored of those. So now it's just like really cool, inspirational, moving quotes that I've read or found. And um, I'm going to read them out and then you're going to give your, well, A, whether you agree with them and B, sort of your opinion on them. So our first one is... Vulnerability isn't about winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that, that came from Brene Brown. Yeah, it did. I thought you'd know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, so, yeah, definitely. Brene, everything Brene says is gospel. You know what I mean? She's the, she's the OG. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it was like, yeah, that was, yeah. No, there isn't much to say on that one, is there? It's like, but I guess in terms of being vulnerable in relationships, I guess we already touched on it. But it's so difficult, I think, to give your whole self to someone, knowing that they have the power to then, you know, break you, as it were. Um, sort of. Uh, See, no, no one has the power to break you but yourself. All, all you're giving them is a key, you know, to, to your lock, essentially, mm. right? Uh, but you have the ability to change your lock in a moment's notice. Mm. So um, to, to me, I think the key with vulnerability and showing up is to understand that there's, it doesn't have to be an all or none situation. There are levels to it. It's, it's very similar to emotional intimacy, right? Where, you know, most psychologists will, will tell you that there's basically like five levels of emotional intimacy. There's almost same thing with vulnerability where you begin maybe just talking about facts. Like it's a beautiful day. The sky is blue. Like if, like, like, if, like the weather is good. Like these are just facts. That's basic level, you know, then you move up. You start talking about the facts of other people. Like, here's how my mother, she would see this day. She's from Jamaica. She would say, this is too cold. You know, she needs something warmer than this. You know, it's like the facts of other people. Then it starts to move up to the feelings of other people, right? And you keep going up 
to the point where you finally land on talking about your feelings. How do you feel about something? That's ultimately the highest level of emotional intimacy, but also vulnerability. Because if you know how I feel about certain things, yeah, you could try to tinker with it. You could try to manipulate, but then I'll just change my lock, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and basically, you know, you're done, right? Yeah. And, and that's the, also the reason why I think that um, if you look at the most successful people, the, the most successful relationship builders in the world, Right. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you, uh, 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 something that should be a secret, but I'm, but actually you'll be the first person I'm telling is I am, I'm, I just started last week writing a book. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And the book is on, um, the art of relationships, romantic, social and professional relationships. And I'm doing, there's a lot of research um, that's going to be placed in this book. I mean, like basically, you know, two decades worth of my research and the research of others will will be put in this. And one thing that I think we always have to do is we have to look at the most successful people in certain categories. So if you look at the most successful professional relationship builders, romantic relationship builders, social relationship builders, there's several things they have in common. One is that they don't hold on to what is toxic or unbeneficial for long. So think about that. Yeah, they're vulnerable when you meet them. They're like, yeah, let's talk about my feelings. But the moment that someone appears to be potentially harmful, they cut the tie never to return. Mm. Now. When you look at people who are the most unsuccessful in romantic relationships or professional relationships or social relationships, you know what characteristic they have? Oh, I'm going to give them another try. Mm. Oh, they're working on it. Oh, they didn't mean it. <laughs> oh, but you know, they look so good. I got it. You know, whatever. You know? That, that is, th- those are stark characteristics. Mm. So if you're going to be vulnerable, that comes with also you being able to release yeah. unbeneficial and toxic quickly. And asserting boundaries. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Yeah. Um, our second quote is, the day we begin to fear our future is the day we leave childhood behind. The day we begin to fear our future. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, I have, uh, I've talked about how I say that, um, you know, the key to being a successful adult is not forgetting uh, how to be, you know, how you were as a child, Mm. right? Um, I think what makes that accurate is the word fear. So fear is the controller. We know it. Like that's, that's the that's how governments can try to control us. That's how businesses try to control us. You know, that's how uh, society has controlled us since the beginning of time is through fear. Um, so the key is to understand that most, you know, most fear is propaganda. Mm. However, 
there are certain things we need to be fearful of. You know what I mean? You know, like, uh, you know, if a bear, I just saw a video with a bear, like a bear crawls into a backyard. Uh, It's crazy. The bear crawls into the backyard. These dogs are trying to fight off the bear. And then a 17 year old girl runs out because those are her dogs. And she pushes the bear. Shit. Yeah. Away. This happening in the United States. Crazy. Right now you think about that, right? It's like, should she have feared the bear? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think so. I think in that situation, fear is 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 a necessity to keep you alive. Yeah, I mean, I'd get if it was like her child, who because that's like a fight or flight response, like maternal instinct, isn't it? It's like protect your babies. But I mean, some people feel that way about their dogs. So fair enough. But yeah, I I mean, I would run. <laughs> uh, yeah, she did. For, but but so there you see, like okay. Fear, yeah, F- fear. You can see where fear is healthy to kick in. Mm. You know what I mean. So, um, but overall, um, yeah, we we fear. I mean, that that's what prevents us from doing all things great is fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, and our final quote is: When they tell you to grow up, they really mean stop growing. And that's Tom Robbins. Mm. Mm. When they tell you to grow up. They really are telling you to stop growing. So I would love to know who the they is in this. Mm. And and the reason why I say that is because, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people consider they to now to be, you know, like people on social, you know, media, um, people who are like coworkers of ours, um, friends of friends, family members, that kind of thing. But it's really interesting because there are basically two types of people you have in your life. You have irrational people and you have rational people. Mm-hmm. Irrational and rational. And you, by the way, like each, all of us, we actually are irrational. We're not rational thinkers when it comes to ourselves. And so, therefore, if it's the they, if it's irrational people saying that, well, it's insignificant. Like, yeah, maybe that is what they mean. Don't grow up. Like, who knows? But throw all of that out. Get your advice from rational people. Mm. Listen to, so the they needs to be rational. If the they are rational, yes. Now, who are rational people? Rational people are going to be people in your life who are experts. People in your life that love you. Not like you, but people in, in your life that love you people in your life who are, uh, and this is, this is uh, uh, kind of fits within the expert category, but people in your life who don't know you, but know your situation, Mm. right? So they're not giving you the advice. They're saying, I've lived through this particular experience. And here's what I suggest to anyone living this experience, right? That's a rational thought, right? So rational, so that so that's why the they I say it like it depends on who it is. Most of us hear so much from irrational people, like friends, are like friends who just like us, um, coworkers, you know, random people on social media. Like, who cares? Like, yeah, what what there's like, yeah, their, their stuff yeah. is not. They're irrational. That's such an interesting interpretation. I never thought of like the they. Who are the they? 
Yeah, and you can do, do you. Yeah, yeah, love it. Oh, Paul, this is like, I don't want to stop talking to you, but we're out of time. And I'm so sad because this has been so informative and brilliant. And I'm literally like, my brain is going 100 miles an hour. So thank you so much for coming on. Good stuff, good stuff. That, that's that's my goal, is to make everybody's brain move at 100 miles an hour. So goal accomplished. Yeah, success, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and thank you. Yeah, thank you again. And, and good luck with writing your book. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I thought this was brilliant. Oh, you did a great job. Great questions all the way around. So thank oh, you. Thanks, Paul. If you enjoyed this episode, then hit subscribe to be the first to get notified of new episodes dropping every Wednesday. A big shout out to our composer and producer, Pete Haff, and a huge thank you to you guys at home for listening. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or reach out on Instagram at 20notsomething. It's lovely hearing your thoughts on the episode and who you guys are keen to hear from in future. With that in mind, we'll be back next week with another brilliant guest. So stay tuned. Stay tuned.